Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome back to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am joined by one of my favorite guests, Greg Thomas, who many of you know, he has been on The Daily Evolver a few times, has appeared regularly on Integral Life. And um, I think, in, in my opinion, Greg is cultivating the next stage of an understanding of race, race relations. I, I, I think a truly integral one. And I feel like he's done that for me. I get a lot of good feedback from listeners uh, uh, in the same way. And, um, and I'll get into that. But before I do, I want to just do a quick introduction for Greg, for those of you who don't know him. Uh, Greg Thomas has had a long career as a writer, editor. He uh, is written for publications from the New Republic, Village Voice, Salon. He was a jazz critic for the New York Daily News. And today, Greg is running the Jazz Leadership Project, which applies the principles of jazz, which and I've done a, couple, a series, actually a couple series on, on uh, jazz with Greg. And it's, it's, I've learned so much about that too. And this integration of individual expression and, and the allowance of individual genius uh, that's then integrated with this group flow. And it's a very beautiful thing to apply to organizations and teams. So he's doing that right now. And welcome, Greg Thomas. Thank you, Jeff Saltzman. Good to join you again, my friend. Yes, indeed. All right. So I said that I think you're really cultivating a new integral understanding of race. And that's what we want to talk about today, mainly. Um, and... Um, and let me just take a stab at, uh, at what you've done for me. I'll, I'll at least uh, put it that way. One is uh, the demotion of race as a category. Mm -hmm. So that it's just not, it's not that it's not important, but it's not the main thing. It's not the most important thing. And that has really helped me to, you know, look through race and see the person on the other side in a way that I hadn't before. And I've talked about that in uh, a couple previous podcasts. One of them uh, is called Cultivating an Integral American Identity, which I'd recommend to people. And also the one you and I did called Beyond Race and Victimhood. And then the other thing is that you're um, emphasizing this deeper American identity, which in some ways uh, brings back traditional values and also, again, allows for this individual genius for individual persons. And it's wrapped in a definitely a cosmopolitan world centric embrace that feels very integrated. So yes. does that sound about right to you? I think that was great. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, that's definitely what I'm shooting for, what I'm striving for, what I'm aiming to do because the conversation around race in in our nation is so bogged down is so it's, it's been kind of stuck for so long and i've been really studying this and applying various models including an integral perspective um and bringing wisdom from other areas too including the arts including blues and jazz as, as you refer to right to to try to do one of the things you said, demote race, 
as an idea that is so important because it's like a phantom. It's a, it's a, it's a, a ghost like idea that we look at and it's like, that ghost is real, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I, I always, I, I, I would always tell people that uh, one of the reasons I've moved to Boulder was that in Boulder, being gay was right up there with eye color. Oh, wow. In terms Dig of that. How, what it meant for people. It's not that it's not nothing. It's just right. that it's not that important. Right. And that's a relief in a way. And, and, and partly uh, what's a relief about it is I realized how um, sort of gripped I was by race, actually. Mm. And I felt bad about that. I thought, does that make me race, racist? You know, it's, it, no, it, no, it, not it, you. Not well, you. What it, what it does is it makes me green, actually. Green ah. is exquisitely tuned to okay. race. Right. Uh, and, and for all the right reasons, because they want right. to rehabilitate the, you know, injustices of the past. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but it, it's nice to include that. We, we definitely want to include right. the great, you know, understandings of race and oppression and victimization and all the stuff right. that comes out of green. But we want, don't want to have that be the only thing. And I realized how much that was the only thing for me. Mm. Well, one thing I think important when you talk about green and, and, and a postmodern uh, outlook, yes, you can look at the victimization, the oppression, um, the injustice, but if you just stay there and don't also add the responses to that from the groups of people, whether it's race, whether it's gender, sexual orientation, there are there responses to those things. People are not just lame victims that, oh, woe is me. Right. People, people respond and say, I'm going to write, I'm going to create art, I'm going to create movements to respond to that so that we can get closer and closer to the realization of our American and our democratic ideals. So that's a part of the picture too, that green postmodernists should acknowledge. And it's not as easy, I think, to acknowledge that because then the idea I think for many at Green is that if you focus on that aspect, then you're taking a light or, or doing less of a shining of a light on the injustices and the continuing um, aspects in the society that are wrong because of those things. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the first tier sort of understanding is you can only see one thing at a time. Right. And there's only so much attention. And if you put it over here, you got less over here. But, not true at well, but can't you, not true at integral. And we can walk and shoot gum at the same time. <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> we're, bored we're bored with this thing, you know, and we got Absolutely. it. We're ready to fly. And right. actually what you've taught me and, um, uh, and I didn't know this, okay. was that there's a rich tradition of this in the African-American community. Absolutely. And you have your two heroes, yes. Albert Murray and Ralph Ellison. And we right. talked about Murray last time. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and today we wanted to, you know, I said, so what should I read about, you know, from, from Ralph Ellison that would give me the download? And you gave me an essay to read called The Little Man at Cheesaw Station, which is... Cheehaw. Cheehaw Station. Cheehaw Station. Yeah. Uh, like, like, like hee-haw? Like, like the show hee-haw? Yes. With a yeah. CH in front. Got it. Yes. <laughs> Cheehaw Station. And it's one of his most famous essays. Of course, he's most famous for his book, The Invisible Man. Uh, but I was blown away by this essay. 
And um, and do you want to set it up or do you? I like, um, yeah, I'll set it up. I mean, the, the essay begins with Ellison talking about a time in the 30s, in the early 30s, where he's had a music lesson. He's, um, I mean, a music audition, actually. He was a trumpet player. He was a music major. He had, a, he had the aspiration to be uh, an American composer by the age of 26, like Wagner was. Wagner was one of his famous, um, one of his favorite composers. So when you're talking about, you know, music and the musical tradition in Afro-American culture, it's something that is taken very seriously. This is not a light thing. So there are, there are standards, like you, you've heard about the Apollo Theater, in New York and Harlem, where you get up there and perform, and if you are not bringing it, they boo your butt off the stage. <laughs> I see that. It's totally- <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to bring it for real, you know. <laughs> so he he played, he hadn't practiced enough, and the and the and the instructors were like, no, no, no. So he went to his, his teacher, Hazel ha- um, Hazel Harrison, composer, pianist. And he was hoping to get, you know, her to pat him on the back. Oh, baby, it's okay. You know, you got to keep your stand aside. But no, she gave him a riddle. She said, you know something? You have to always perform at your best, not just because you're supposed to perform at your best, period, but because you never know who's listening in the American audience. In fact, Chihaw Station, which was a, 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 train station in Alabama, uh, near the Tuskegee campus, you might find a little man behind the stove who knows the tradition, who knows the standards, who knows all of this stuff, and you might not expect it, but he or she might know that. So you got to perform at your best because you can't and you shouldn't insult your audience, their intelligence or their taste. And he was like, what? Little man at Cheetah Station, what are, you, what are you talking about? So then he goes off on this incredible uh, essayist, essayistic journey uh, through the ideas of revolving around race, American culture, American identity, uh, the melting pot, ethnicity, how we as Americans tend to want to go back to what we call the traditional, you know, or we want to go back to Amber because that's where we feel comfortable. That's where you have a sense of identity, family, this and that, and that's understandable. But this nation was built on a tradition of, we are not going to be confined by tradition, particularly English tradition, European uh, or British tradition. I mean, that was the model. So when you incorporate that approach, the realization of democracy or moving in that direction is going to give you a kind of a anxious relationship with tradition, no matter what your background is. So then what you do is, as, as Ellison says in the, in the essay, I mean, you acknowledge that these things are very difficult for a lot of people to deal with. 
But if you respect, first of all, as we say in jazz, you got to get your chops together. You got to know your stuff. You got to practice. You got to really know your craft, your art, your field. You got to know your stuff. And then you got to respect the fact that there are those out here, even though you might not believe it based on the way they look, their gender, their so-called race, that they would know certain things or be hip to a particular tradition, but you might find out that they are. And at the end of the essay, he finds out through a very uh, funny occurrence, he was working for the um, uh, Writers Project, it was a federal project, you know, after the Depression, um, where he was going around getting people to sign surveys about, as he says in the essay, some social issue which no one remembers today. He <laughs> <You laughs> couldn't even remember. Right, you know. <laughs> and he's in this building, right? In the San Juan section of New York, where now in midtown Manhattan, where Lincoln Center is, so it's around 59th and Broadway. And he says he was going downstairs, he had filled his quota of getting signatures, but he heard these gentlemen, these really loud, you know, working class, Southern idiom influenced black men arguing vociferously over who was the best soprano in the opera at the Met. And, and, it's, and it's all of this incongruity, what? Because he was used to walking around these buildings and hearing men arguing and, you know, getting frightened. And well, it, not so it, much. It, no. he well, no, well, well, he didn't get frightened because, see, the thing is, as he says in the essay, a lot of times when you hear people talking like that, rhetorically, that's a substitute for actual violence. You're good. You know what I mean? So, so it wasn't that. It was the content. It was the subject matter. He's yeah. like, What? So, he so said, they're he, arguing about the, 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 the relative uh, 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 qualities of these sopranos. At the right, moment. right. Yeah. And then they're like, no, she's better. No, she's better. And going through enacting their gestures and stuff. So he's like, what in the world? So he decides to knock on the door. He goes in and they're like gruff. You know, they got coal on their face. So they're actually coal miners on top of it. Right. So he gets them to sign the, the, uh, the petition after they ask him a couple of questions. And they say, oh, you work for the Writers Project. You're a writer? Yes. How long have you been writing? One year. Oh, okay. How long have you hitting the big time? I see you're a writer. Okay. So what did you do before that? Oh, I was at Tuskegee studying music. Ah, music. Very good. William Dawson, great, great uh, uh, leader there, music leader. So it says, since you're a musician, we'll sign the petition. So they signed the petition. They hand it to him, and they're like, okay. You know, basically, it was time for him to go. So he said, I got to ask you something. How do you gentlemen know so much about sopranos and opera at the Met? So there's a pause. And they burst out laughing hysterically. And they explained to him that they are extras at the Met, he says, man, if you, you see us dressed up, we're the best damn Egyptians you can imagine. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so it was, and then he started laughing and it was proof of his, of his teacher's admonition that you never know in, in American society where you're going to find 
people who are very knowledgeable, no matter what their class background or any of those distinctions that we think determine what a person will know or what they're about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so beautiful. And, um, uh, and that's the little man at Chiha Station, the little man behind the stove, but you never know. And, and uh, I, I want to read how he describes please. the little man. It's oh, so please. He says, there are those individuals we sometimes meet whose refinement of sensibility is inadequately ex- explained by family background, formal education, or social status. These individuals seem to have been sensitized by some obscure force that issues undetected from the chromatic scale of American social hierarchy, a force that throws off a strange ultrasonic, ultra-semi-semitone <laughs> that creates within those attuned to its vibrations a mysterious enrichment of personality. Just how these characteristics operate in concert involves the mysterious interaction between environment, personality, instinct, and culture. And first of all, can I just pause for a moment and say that's the four quadrants. Talk to me. That's right. Go there. And also this... (laughs) This sense of this ultrasonic, ultrasima semitones create within those attuned to its vibrations, a mysterious mysterious enrichment of personality. That's like, that's getting into Whitman territory. Well, see, you know, that's just this. Absolutely. There you go. Keep going. Keep going. I want to come. But I want you to to say, just read the, I think, the last sentence. Yes. It appears to be a random effect generated by a society in which certain assertions of personality, formerly the prerogative of high social rank, have become the privilege of the anonymous and the lowly. It's fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the level of, of writing, first of all. Yes. Exquisite. Yes. The eloquence, you know. Uh, and, but yes, you mentioned Whitman. He definitely was very influenced by the great 19th century and 20th century writers. Uh, so let's say just in terms of American, Melville, Whitman, Twain, um, uh, Emerson, mm-hmm. who he has a character in Invisible Man that's based on Emerson, Mr. Norton. In the 19th, I'm sorry, the 20th century, Hemingway, Faulkner, and others. But one of the things he said about the 19th century, as opposed to the 20th century, at least the first half of it, is he thought the 19th century American writers, the best of them, dealt with the moral dilemma and dilemmas of the nation as regards race. Okay, Unlike the 20th century, at least at that time, the first half, say, where they were kind of avoiding it, they were ignoring it, they were going around it. So he thought it takes you know, courage to be able to deal with those issues and to deal with one's American identity um, as an ideal and as an aspiration towards which you should be moving. So Whitman is definitely there. And there's that poetic quality that, yes. that you'll find in, in Ellison. Yes, for that, sure. That, that, that sort of uh, upper right energetic, you know, that, um. that electric you know, that, that uh, the, the ultra semi-semitones. That, yeah, this, the vibrations. The, the vibrations, yes. Yes. That is uh, uniquely American 
and that there's an updraft that is lifting everybody. And that's, I, I didn't know that. Well, you know, I didn't know that there was this tradition. In- well, oh, absolutely, man. It is it's there. And, and it shows you what a rich undercurrent we have to plumb, to, to go to and tap into that's just waiting for us. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I have been trying for about seven, eight years now to get folks in Integral to check out Ralph Ellison, to check out Albert Murray. Um, because there are people like, for example, Charles Johnson, who is one of America's most celebrated writers today, who won the National Book Award in 1990 for his novel, Middle Passage, who has a background in deep background in Western philosophy. And you find that in his work, in his fiction and nonfiction. At that 1990 ceremony, he honored Ralph Ellison, who was there. Because Ralph Ellison, yes, was the first Black American to win the National Book Award in 1953. And that was for Invisible Man? That was for Invisible Man, yes. Yes. So, So I mentioned this because Charles Johnson is someone who's still around today. He's a Buddhist, has books out on Buddhism. He's one of our greatest American literary figures and writers, deeply influenced by Ralph Ellison. And there are people who, in integral, who it it would be such a natural connection. Uh, The depth of philosophical erudition and the Buddhist background would seem to be a natural fit. But there are people, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised, who never even heard his name in Interval. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I've and, never read anything by him. Yeah, yeah. And, and these people are there. They, they are there. Um, and they really shine a light on what's, what's possible. Yeah. And, and if we are more integrative in Integral, in terms of the references that we draw upon and the people we read and don't assume because of a particular background, whatever those external backgrounds are, some of the ones Ellison mentioned, you know, educational background and such. Yeah. If we're open to wisdom and knowledge being able to come from any number of sources, it's going to be really helpful. And and one of the things I I want to mention this, because when we talk about integral, these are related to certain other terms. Integrity. Uh, it's related to integration, right? So integration, of course, in the 60s, there was the civil rights movement, which was a fight to integrate the society that was segregated. So Ellison, in his work, talks about the integration of the personality being the greatest level of, of Totally. integration it's so it's so beautiful in fact it, it gets to the next thing i wanted to read from him because uh, oh, he doesn't shy away from acknowledging you know the inequalities it's just again they're not the most important thing the victim thing is not the most important thing and, and there's a whole history of humanity victimizing and re-victimizing and all of that yes but so here's what he says he says and he's talking again about this little man behind the stove who knows way more than you think he does <laughs> he demands that the relationship between his own condition and that of the more highly placed be recognized he senses that american experience is of a whole and he wants the interconnections revealed 
and not out of a penchant for protest, nor out of petulant vanity, but because he sees his own condition as an inseparable part of a larger truth in which the high and the lowly, the known and the unrecognized, the comic and the tragic are woven into the American skein, which mm. is fabric. You know, right. Yeah. Uh, that's as good as it gets, you know, exactly. in terms of, you know, there's, there's a transcendent quality to that. And, um, and I feel like it would be so uh, useful and, 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 and a very important piece of the puzzle for, um, for uh, today's uh, young people. Yes. You know? Totally agree. And, um, yeah, so, um, so this Americanness. Yeah. Uh, in green, um, the only role that America plays in the racial story is uh, the perpetrator of the original sin of slavery. Right, and, the victimizer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Victimizer oppressor. That's true. That needs to be deeply felt, deeply seen. There's karmas that uh, resonate to this day from all of that. But this is saying there's something else too. And, and I insist that you see my contribution and, 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 and that's, that's powerful. That, that feels like a power. Oh, it is a power. In fact, one of the things that Ellison said about the power of culture, a couple of things. He says that for one, if you go back to slavery times, Black folks were enslaved, so they didn't have social, political, or economic rights. Oftentimes, they didn't even have the right to celebrate birth or death. Um, the great Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson called that a state of social death. So that was true, but one of the things Ellison points out is that even though that was the case, it was in the cultural sphere that there was opportunity for black folks to define their own values, which you then find in their folklore, the, the Br'er Rabbit tales, Jack Rabbit, you know, which became Bugs Bunny, <laughs> um, John Henry, you know, certain mythological tales. The blues is a part of that legacy. Um, and he also said, I'm gonna take it back to the African aspect. He says, it's interesting and ironic that perhaps the very first Americans, culturally speaking, were the Africans who became Americanized. Because when they came over, you had different tribes that were put together, right? Spoke different languages, had different traditions. But what they had to do was they had to formulate, they, they came from traditions that, in which art was a very important uh, aspect of their whole social fabric, cultural fabric and such. So they took the most important aspects of their cultures and they created a cultural idiom uh, in which they were able to actually, and they were less invested in the past because they were torn away from it. So they didn't have as much of the ties as say, maybe, um, Irish or people from England had to the old country and that type of stuff that wasn't there. You know, of course there was the memory and black Americans, many of them 
want to go back to their African origins and we can understand that. But they became kind of the first Americans, culturally speaking, ironically so. So when you look at that and you say, wow, if that's the case, then there are certain lessons that we all can learn by looking at that experience. And in that experience is not just the great uh, artistic example of great musicians, though that's there, dance, that's there, or um, the, the level playing field that sports, when sports became integrated, it became, is also in the intellectual sphere. It's also in the sphere of great writing. And that's one thing that I'm hoping that conversations like this will get folks who have the cognitive capacity and depth of integral folks will check out some of these people yeah. because there's a lot to learn. And I so appreciate you acknowledging the things that you've learned and your openness to it, Jeff. And I'm hoping yeah. that others will have that same openness. Well, yeah, I, 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 it's such a relief. It's <laughs> like, you know, taking off a tight shoe. It's that, ah. you know, that's, that's the nature of uh, emergence. It's, mm -hmm. it has a, a, a self um, authenticating quality. You feel like a bigger, better person. And you, can't, you know, yeah. or out of that. Right. That's right. Once it, once it happens, there's yeah. no going back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so along those lines, so you mentioned Charles Johnson. Yes. Uh, the Middle Passage. Middle Passage is one book. He's got another book called The Dreamer, which is on Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. But it's a fictional account and it's so powerful. Really? Um, that came out in the late 90s. And he's got several other novels and several other nonfiction books. I, I, one that came out, I think, a year and a half, two years ago, on, I think it's called The Ways of the Writer, on his experience as a writer. He has several books specifically on Buddhism. So, so he's, yeah, definitely, wow. he's definitely someone to check out. But see, one of the things that happens is that when you have people who are on a certain level, they are influenced by others on that level. So that's one of the reasons why True. someone like a Ralph Ellison and an Albert Murray would be people that he's influenced by. Um, and why I'm saying go to the source. I mean, when you're talking about Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray, but let's stick with Ellison, you're talking about perhaps the greatest essayist, American essayist of the 20th century. I mean, think about that. Now, some people say James Baldwin. James Baldwin was a great essayist. They say he was a much better essayist than a novelist. I mean, that, you know, you can get into literary criticism. But in terms of his ideas about the country, American identity, American culture, and the Black American idioms placed to that as a part of being integral to American life, culture, and identity, is he Ellison. appreciated? Uh, uh, in certain circles, in certain circles, yeah, he is, but not like he should be, not to the extent he should be. Yeah. And part of it is because he was so celebrated as uh, who, in his literary achievement for Invisible Man that there were people on the left um, who felt stung by his depiction of the brotherhood, which they thought was the Communist Party. And they criticize him for that. He also critiqued black nationalism through uh, a character um, that uh, Ross, the exhorter, and then Ross, the, the destroyer in the same uh, book. So you have black nationalists in the 60s and black radicals who didn't like that depiction. 
And they actually, you know, railed against him in the 60s. And then that found its way through black studies departments where Ellison and Murray are not emphasized anywhere near to the extent that they should be. You also have the dynamic of American studies in the U.S. Academy once being very prominent and that with the advent of postmodernism and post-structuralism, that became less and less and less the case. So there are many reasons why that's the case. But amongst people like Henry Louis Gates at Harvard, Robert O'Mealy at Columbia, um, and many, many writers and intellectuals who also are dealing and grappling with the same issues of the creation of art as an expression of your individual identity, but also your American identity, Ralph Ellison is someone that they go to. So mm -hmm. he's not completely ignored, but I, I think he should definitely be more recognized and certainly read by way more people so they can really get to the to fruit. And I'll, I'll say this last thing, at least until you ask the next question. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> One of the things I realized in rereading this essay is that the democratic process actually is a way and can be a way at least for consciousness and culture to evolve right so the, the idea of democracy you could say that came in with a whole modern um movement modern um advance of consciousness and culture right but it is getting us to ultimately, and this is why the work of some of these black American writers and things is so important, to integrate aspects of ourselves. So it's not just integrating the black American tradition, it's integrating, integrating all the different strands into a, a, a beautiful fabric, uh, a mosaic. And you can even say a melting pot. You know, yeah. the, you We're say all of that stuff. <laughs> so, uh, so, so when you think about it, it's not about just staying at modern. Just because it was a part of that modern wave, it's moving us towards, I think, an integral identity. Oh, I definitely do. And, and I mean, even just to, to get directly to what you're talking about, here's another quote from this beautiful essay. It's on cultural appropriation, ah. which is you know, a big trigger for green. Uh, and this is a bit beyond that. This is a bigger way of thinking about that. And he talks about, he says, the elements of the many available tastes, traditions, ways of life and values that make up the total culture have been ceaselessly appropriated and made their own consciously, unselfconsciously, or imperialistically. Indeed, it was through this process of cultural appropriation and misappropriation that Englishmen, Europeans, Africans, and Asians become Americans. Americans seem to have sensed intuitively that the possibility of enriching the individual self by such pragmatic and opportunistic appropriations has constituted one of the most precious of their many freedoms. That's beautiful. And it's so beautiful. powerful. And it, that's the way culture works. It's, you know, culture is not static. You don't have a particular group that's separated away from the mainstream of society as you have certain tribes 
that you find that have been, you know, secluded from quote unquote civilization for hundreds of years. That's not the way it works. So since you're interacting with different people who come from different cultural backgrounds, that stuff is going to rub off all kinds of ways. When I watch, you know, movies, you talk about popular culture. If I watch a movie and I see a, uh, these days they have female heroines in the movies. So let's say I'm 10 years old and I see, you know, one of these films. I'm going to identify with that character, that heroic character, not just, I mean, whether they were a woman, a man, and that's what happened with like Tom Mix and different characters. It's like when you're, you're young, you gravitate to certain figures and you're not segregating, oh, that person doesn't have my same ethnic or racial or cultural background they're formed. No, it's like you identify with the character, you identify with the narrative arc of a story. So you're influenced by all that stuff. And that's why <clears throat> together, it's not about, again, it's not just about Black American culture. It's about looking at the various strands and tributaries from all kinds of backgrounds and acknowledging them and appreciating them and embracing them as part of our own. See, it's easy for me as a New Yorker. That's another aspect of my identity. I grew up around Polish, Irish, Italians, Jews. I mean, and <laughs> the aspects of their culture, you know, I can go into an Italian thing right now. I can go into a Jewish thing. I mean, it's just a part of, and, and, and it's, you know, it's like a wonderful gumbo stew. Yeah. You know, you know it really is uniquely American. Yes. I mean, it really is. And, uh, and uh, to appreciate that at, at, at the, as, as well as at the same time, we hold the, the insights of all of our history. Right. Um, it's a beautiful thing, and it feels like the way forward, man. It really is. And if you look at the blues, I mean, the blues as, a, as an art form, first of all, to take it to a much higher level, um, all art, and this is Ellison and Murray, all art is a way through which human beings, and they are influenced by Andre Malraux and some others when they say this, all art is a way to deal with what they call and what comes from our role, man's fate, humanity's fate, the human condition. So one perspective is that you have chaos, you have entropy, you have disorder. So art is one of the ways human beings give form to experience. They take, you take your experience and you place it into art, whether that's sculpture or visual art or painting or music or dance, and you transmute your experience into that and it becomes aesthetic statement and becomes a form through which you can be influenced. And of course, it applies to literature and drama also. So that being the case, through art, we're able to confront the inevitability of death. We're able to actually put our values and experience in art to survive longer than we are going to live as human beings, as individual human beings. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why when you look to my ancient Egypt, for example, the power of the pyramids and what they represent, or you can look at the, the Mayan civilization. I mean, 
their monuments, which you can look at as far as architecture as an art, that survives. The language doesn't survive, the people, of course, Egyptians are still here, but in a different form. You see what I'm saying? That survives. So art is not frivolous. I mean, if you talk about truth, goodness, and beauty, that beauty dimension is so powerful and so important. No, it really is. It's a, it's, I love how Steve McIntosh talks about it. Is, uh, it, it has a gravity. It's pulling us. You know, right. truth and goodness have values, gravity, yes. uh, and, and they pull us forward. And wow, thank you. I'm so glad. Yes. <laughs> and thank you. Yeah. Well, Greg, uh, what fun. And, um, and, 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 and what a nice immersion into Ralph Ellison and, and this whole tradition of, of thought. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, I encourage people to check out our past ones. I think Beyond uh, Race and Victimization was one, and the right. deep, Cultivating a Deeper American Identity, uh, which was more focused on the Albert Murray part. Uh, and uh, and uh, keep up your great work, and good luck. Thank you. How's the, how's the uh, leadership coming? Oh, great. Jazz Leadership Project. You know, it's so interesting what things are happening now. Um, it was through my conversation with David Reardon in anticipation of the What Now conference that someone from the New School, Parsons, New, the New School Parsons Division, contacted me. This is someone who's an associate dean, and... Uh, she is deeply ensconced in the whole integral model. Deeply. Good. Yeah. She said she wrote, she got, she wrote to me and she said she connected with me on LinkedIn. She said, you know, I've been following your writing for a while, but I'm connecting because I heard about this jazz leadership project. And I said, okay, great. We connected, we talked. And this is late January right, that we're taping this. But on February 14th, I'm going to be doing a presentation of the Jazz Leadership Project for a class that she teaches called Managing Creative Teams. So it's already being um, uh, integrated into a, 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 a great academic institution. And we're going to be doing other things with that school. We're actually in conversation with the NYPD to do these trainings. Um, and these development workshops and seminars, I should say, with the civilian population. So there are various things that are being worked on right now that I'll be happy to tell more details about, but uh, things are going well. And thank you yeah. so much for asking. Fantastic. Like I said, I think it's a terrific integration of jazz and leadership. It really is something, isn't it? There's something there. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Well, thank you, Greg Thomas. Uh, thank you, Integral Life, for sponsoring the Daily Evolver. And, um, and thank you, everybody, for listening. See you next time.